Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Okay, well if you turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study through Mark's Gospel. Now before we dive in, uh, I need to set the stage for what we're about to study because as you will see here when we begin in verse 34, Jesus is continuing the thought that he began last time. Jesus has taken his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi, and in the midst of this shameless and extravagant display of idolatry, Jesus asks them, who do men say that I am? And Jesus wasn't asking that in order to have his ego boosted. But what he was doing is he was setting the table for his more important follow-up question, but who do you say that I am? And he didn't ask that because he wanted to know what they thought of him. No, he asked it because it was important for them to know who he was. They needed to have an accurate understanding of who he was. And you remember from last week, Peter said, you are the Christ or the Messiah. And so Peter got that answer gloriously right this time. (laughs) But what followed afterwards was kind of like a good news, bad news thing. Good in the fact that Peter and the disciples now knew that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. But bad in the fact that Jesus told them how he would have to go to Jerusalem, he would be rejected, he would suffer and die and rise again the third day. And those two things really don't go together in the minds of these disciples. First of all, Jesus is the Messiah which kind of spoke of power and victory, not of suffering and death. So that was the bad news in the hearts and minds of the disciples, but it really wasn't all bad news, was it? There was some good news. If you look again at verse 31, it says, and after three days rise again. Well, that's great news, isn't it? I mean, that's really the best news. Well, that leads us now to our passage this morning where Jesus has a little more of this bad news to reveal to his disciples. So let's look at verse 34. It says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now I want you to put yourself in the disciples' sandals here for a moment. It was bad enough for them to hear that Jesus would suffer and he would be rejected and he would be executed on that cruel cross. But now Jesus tells them, hey, you guys have to go out and do the same thing. And if you look again at verse 34, Jesus wasn't just speaking to his disciples. He had called the people to himself. And he's saying, hey, everyone, I want you all to hear this. If you want to come after me, this is what you have to do. 
You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. And you have to follow me. Friends, everyone in those days would have known exactly what that meant. We, the ch- the, uh, we as the church especially, have really sanitized the meaning of the cross. We've turned it into a piece of jewelry or a religious sculpture or religious relic of some kind. Please understand, in those days, the cross had no other purpose than death. And if you were to take up your cross, there was only one thing that was going to happen. You were going to be crucified. You no longer have any power or control over your own life because you've given up all control of your life to that cross. But friends, I want to make something very clear here. Jesus was not calling us necessarily to die a martyr's death. But he was calling us to live a martyr's life. And right now you may be saying, John, what do you mean by that? Well, if Jesus Christ is my identity and I follow him, If he went the way of the cross, then I will go the way of the cross. If Jesus took up his cross and went and willingly to crucifixion, then that's what I'm going to do in my mind and my heart every single day. Look again at verse 34. It says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, you need to understand, Jesus wasn't talking about a progression here. He's basically saying the same thing in different words. To deny yourself is the same thing as to take up your cross. It's the same idea because the cross was not about self-promotion. The cross was not about self-affirmation. The person who carried the cross knew that they could not save themselves. And friends, we need to understand something really important here. That denying self is not the same as self-denial. And some of us are very good at self-denial. We know how to discipline and control ourselves in the pursuit of some goal. Let me give you an example. An Olympic athlete will never be successful without self-denial. Look, you've got to get up every morning early to train sometimes multiple times in a day. You've got to eat all the right foods. You can't have that piece of chocolate cake that you might want. You have to eat properly. You have to discipline yourself physically, mentally, emotionally. You have to be an extremely self-disciplined person, and you practice a lot of self-denial. But why do you do it? Well, you do it all so that you can stand up on that podium and say, yes, look at me. I did it. I'm the champion. But when we truly deny ourselves, we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ 
and we determ- we're determined to obey His will. We're no longer in control of our lives anymore. Christ is. And so we go the way of the cross. And even though we go the way of the cross, we need to understand that the way of the cross is not the goal in itself. It is the way to the goal. Friends, the cross wasn't the end. The cross was the way to the empty tomb. The cross was the way to resurrection life. The cross was the way to resurrection power. And if you stop at the cross, then you really miss God's purpose. And Jesus is going to explain that here now as we move on to verse 35. He says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is telling you and I this morning, I want to save your life. But the only way that you can save your life is by losing it. So the real goal is that God wants your life to be saved. God wants you to enjoy the power and the glory and the beauty of resurrection life. And the only way to do that is to go the way of the cross. Now he explains more here in verse 36. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the, glo- in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, do you understand what Jesus is saying here? You need to come after me. And you can't be ashamed of me. You have to be willing to give up everything to follow me because that's the pathway to life. It's exactly like the example of the seed that Jesus gave in John chapter 12, verse 24. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. And the only way those seeds are going to fulfill the purpose God intended for them is if you let them die and be buried. And if you don't do this, you'll be in this terrible situation that Jesus spoke about in verse 36 where he said what does it profit or what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul well sure you're a successful person but are you going to lose your own soul well sure you've made a lot of money but will you lose your soul sure you've made friends Everybody likes you, but will you lose your own soul? You thought you had gained everything, but in reality, you lost it all. You lost everything because you didn't have your priorities straight. 
Friends, giving our lives to Jesus all the way and living other-centered lives, that doesn't take away from our lives. It adds to it. And Jesus is asking us to unashamedly take our place alongside him. So the question is, will you choose to accept his invitation to follow him this morning? Will you identify yourself with him and walk down death row with him? And friends, I know that's a heavy call. But that's the way to life. Jesus wants to show them some of his glory as we continue into Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It says, And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now at first glance, we read this and think, Jesus might be talking about his second coming. But no, he's not. He's talking about a preview to glory, a preview to power that comes from laying down our lives, that comes from going the way of the cross. And so Jesus says, let me give you a preview of some of that power, some of that glory. So what does he say Just a few days later, as we arrive at verse 2, it says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain away from all the rest. And many people think that this means that Peter, James, and John were special favorites of Jesus. That Jesus had a special love relationship with them that he didn't have with the others. And you know what? That is entirely possible. But most people ignore a more obvious possibility. If you remember from other passages in other Gospels, these three men were very often squabbling amongst each other. They were having arguments and disputes over who was the greatest in the kingdom. So it is entirely plausible that Jesus was taking him taking them with him just so he could keep an eye on them. It is possible. Nevertheless, they go up top on this high mountain and Jesus transfigures before them. And friends, we can really get the wrong idea here if we think that this means that somehow a spotlight was shone on Jesus and he became this brilliant glowing white. It wasn't like that at all. This was not some outside effect. The meaning behind this word translated here as transfigured is not a light that shines 
upon somebody from an outward source, but is rather a light that shines from the inside out. In other words, the radiance with which Jesus shone here came from within him. And you can just imagine how glorious and fantastic and beautiful this would have been. Jesus allowed his true appearance to shine forth in that brief moment. An appearance that was far more appropriate for the king of glory than for a humble man. And I know it must have just appeared fantastic. But my friends, I think that the greater miracle was most of the time Jesus could not go around looking like this. But Jesus in that a moment allowed his glory to shine forth. But you know, I find something really interesting. Philippians chapter 2, the passage tells us about the mind of Christ. And in verse 5 of Philippians 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, or in very nature God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, who was in very essence God, left the splendor of heaven. And verse 8 says, and being found in appearance as a man. Meaning, he literally cloaked his glory. And apart from only a couple of instances in Scripture, that cloaking remained. But Jesus, in that moment, allowed his glory to shine forth to these men. And my friends, I think that's an even greater miracle. And what Jesus was doing here by revealing himself in this manner was showing these disciples, look guys, I am in complete control. I know what I'm doing. You don't need to worry about this. I am going the way of the cross and you can have confidence to follow me. You know, it would have been enough if D Jesus had just transfigured before these disciples. But that's not all. Look at it here now in verse 4. It says, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking to Jesus. Well, isn't that remarkable? Jesus is there shining in all of his transfigured glory when all of a sudden Elijah and Moses show up. But not just appearing, they're having their own little bit of a conference going on with Jesus. Now, we don't know what they were talking about, but Luke chapter 9 does tell us a few things about what they spoke about. They spoke about what Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking about his coming passion and the coming cross um, that Jesus would be 
enduring. And although we don't know the entirety or much more than that for sure, we do know that it would have been glorious. <coughs> and I don't know about you, but I sure would have loved to have been there for that. Just to hear these incredible servants of God conversing with Jesus. Wow. But there's something else here I find remarkable about this. Apparently the disciples knew right away that it was Moses and Elijah. How? They'd never met them before. These men had died hundreds, if not thousands of years before their time. It wasn't like they were sporting these little name times. Hi, my name's Moses. Hi, my name's Elijah. Yet they still knew that it was Moses and Elijah. You know, some people ask me, if we're going to know each other in heaven, well, we know we won't look exactly like we do right now. I mean, how could it be glory in heaven if we don't look at least a little bit better than we do right now? This would not be heaven for me. <clears throat> but I think we all wonder if we're going to even recognize each other. And from this account, it is clearly yes to that question. In fact, they even recognize Moses and Elijah, whom they've never seen before. But what is more glorious is that they even knew their names. And my friends, that is exactly how it's going to be in heaven. Isn't that fantastic? Well, now we come to one of those wonderful instances where Peter puts his foot in his mouth. Let's look at verse 5 to 6. He says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Oh, how I can relate to Peter here. We talk when we don't know what to say. And it's like we start talking, hoping the right words will come out, but it rarely does. And it's so easy for us sitting on the sidelines to be critical of Peter. And we kind of use him like this spiritual whipping boy. Ah, oh, there goes Peter saying something stupid again. There goes Peter putting his foot in his mouth. Old, bold, bumbling Peter. But on the other hand, we love Peter, don't we? We love his open heart. We love his boldness and enthusiasm. Look, my friends, I want you to remember a few things about Peter. He was the one who proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. 
He was the one who stepped out of the boat and walked on the water. He was the one who grabbed a sword to defend Jesus in the garden. And although he was often rash and impulsive, there was a fire in his belly. And quite frankly, in my mind, we need more Peters in our church. And I need to phrase that not more Peters is. (laughs) But more like Peter. But sometimes it's much better to have someone you need to rein in from time to time than to have someone you continually have to push and prod to get moving. So yes, Peter stuck his foot in his mouth, but he also did more than most as well. So here we have Peter speaking out, and you see what his great error was, don't you? He wants to build a tabernacle for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And by saying that, he's putting Jesus on an equal level as Moses and Elijah. Now, if somebody were to put me on equal footing with Moses and Elijah... My head would probably get so big, you couldn't get around it. I mean, that would be a tremendous, if not misplaced, compliment. But friends, you do realize that was not a compliment to Jesus. It was a put-down. You're bringing Jesus down to the same level as Moses and Elijah. Jesus has just revealed to the disciples that he's the Messiah. He's transfigured before them, showing them that he is God. And now, Peter, you're comparing God to a man? That's a pretty big and foolish blunder, don't you think? Jesus is far greater than Elijah. He's far greater than Moses. And that is what the Father from heaven establishes here now in verse 7. It says, And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am. Or, Or hear him. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. So the father is saying, Peter, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. Don't you go putting my son in the same category as Moses and Elijah. You know, in our world today, there are thousands of priests, thousands of ministers, thousands of voices of authority in this world, and they're all saying, Listen to me. But what did the Father say here in verse 7? Listen to Him. Hear Him. 
Friends, we have so many voices clamoring for our attention. We have philosophies. We have modern theologies. We have old revived heresies. We have political announcements. Your emails and texts are flooded with messages all saying, listen to us. But God the Father says, listen to him. And don't you see, this is the glorious stamp of approval of God himself. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him when he talks about going the way of the cross and denying yourself. Listen to him when he talks about the need to give up your life so that you can gain it. Listen to him when he says he needs to go to Jerusalem and be crucified and then rise again. Listen to him. Well, now Jesus speaks to his disciples here in verse 8. He says, Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves now as they came down from the mountain he commanded them that they should tell no one these things they had seen till the son of man had risen from the dead so they kept this word to themselves questioning what the rising of the dead meant it's kind of funny here again these disciples promise we're going to keep this to ourselves yeah he asked us to keep it to ourselves We'll keep it to ourselves. But they really had no idea what they were even promising. They didn't even get it. They didn't even know what it meant. But we're not going to tell anyone. Well, why would we? We have no clue what you're talking about anyway. <clears throat> and so it's pretty easy for us to have a laugh at these disciples' expense until we look in the mirror and see ourselves in it. You know, we're good at hearing sermons for other people. We sit in a service as God's Word is preached, and we do this classic thing. Oh, man, I sure hope my wife is listening. She really needs to hear this. Oh, man, I really need to sing, send a link of this message to so-and-so. And suddenly, we've heard this sermon for everyone except ourselves. Friends, we need to hear what the Lord says. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. It's not hear Him for the sake of somebody else. It's not, um, or it's hear Him for you. He speaks to you. When He says deny yourself, and take up your cross and follow him. Who's he speaking to? He speaks to you and me. To each one of us as individuals. Well, let's conclude this morning with verse 11 to 13. And they asked him, saying, Who do the scribes say that Elijah, or why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and he told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did not, uh, they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Now, the coming of Elijah was clearly prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6. And so the disciples have a specific question in their mind to ask here. If you're the Messiah, then where's Elijah? The prophecy says that Elijah comes first and we haven't seen him. Which again is kind of funny because they literally just saw him on the mountain. But the disciples didn't think that way. They wanted Jesus to answer the question. So Jesus tells them, that the Elijah prophecy will indeed be fulfilled. And though he doesn't go into it right now, he could have detailed how it appears that Elijah will in fact come maybe either in a restored state or in a resurrected state, but he will be on the earth before Jesus comes again in glory at his second coming. Because this prophecy from Malachi is pointedly relevant to the second coming of Jesus Christ, not his first coming. But the point is clear in verse 13. Elijah has come. And if you read that, then you understand who he is talking about. Because Elijah came in the person of John the Baptist. And it's not that John the Baptist was Elijah back from the dead or a Elijah reincarnated? No, no, no. We don't believe that at all. The Bible says that John the Baptist ministered in the spirit and in the office of Elijah. He fulfilled the role of Elijah. He fulfilled the function of Elijah. And so this prophecy was fulfilled in a partial sense at the first coming of Jesus, but it will be fulfilled in a perfect sense at the second coming of Jesus. And in that, Jesus answered this question of his disciples. Friends, this was a very impressive experience that Jesus had, wasn't it? With the transfigured Jesus, with Moses on one side and Elijah on the other. And it left a lasting impression on these men, especially for Peter. It still rang in his ears many decades after it happened. Because it confirmed who Jesus was. But I want you to understand something. As impressive as this experience was, it in and of itself did not change the lives of the disciples as much as being born again and being filled with the Spirit of God did. And maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and somehow you think what you really need in your life is some spectacular heavenly vision. Lord, if I could just see you in the same way that Peter, James, and John did there, then I'd believe. Lord, I'd probably never sin again. 
just ask yourself this question. Did Peter sin again after this? Of course he did. Did Peter deny Christ after this experience? Yes, he did. How could he deny Jesus after he had seen him transfigured in his glory? Friends, an experience like that is not the key. It's a different kind of experience. It's a personal experience that takes place in the heart. As it's drawn close to the heart of Jesus. Friends, being born again by the Spirit of God is the greatest miracle. And it's the greatest display of the glory of God ever. Don't ever underestimate the change that goes on in your life at salvation. That is the greatest miracle and the greatest display of God's glory ever. And it's far better to live near to Jesus and to enjoy His presence each and every day than for you to be overshadowed by a bright cloud and to hear God from heaven speak with His own voice unto you. So won't you do it? Won't you draw close to Jesus today? God wants a relationship with you. A love relationship with you. He wants it with you even more than you want it with him. And so he's waiting and saying, won't you draw near to me? So let's pray right now and ask God to confirm these things in our heart. Father, you've promised that if we draw nigh to you, you'll draw nigh to us. Lord, help us to put these distractions, to put these voices, to put all these things that get in the way. And listen to you. Lord, we have so many things in our lives that will distract us or pull us away. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but they draw us away from having that close, personal relationship with you. Lord, help us to search our hearts and realize how important it is for us personally just to reach out to you. You're standing there right waiting. You're leading the way. Lord, help us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow you. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.